Welcome. I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh or I get to hang around the virtual Six Gun Justice podcast corral, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today are partners in life and partners in writing, the best-selling duo of Michael and Kathleen Gear, Archaeologists, anthropologists, and experienced bison ranchers, the Gears have individually written a number of best-selling novels, as well as together having written 37 international bestsellers, with their books being translated into at least 29 languages. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on the Six Gun Justice podcast. Where are you talking to me from today? We're in Cody, Wyoming. And you've been there how long? We've only been here for about a year, Paul. Prior to this, the last 30 years, we were 80 miles south of here, outside of the the little scenic town of Thermopolis, Wyoming, where we owned and ran Red Canyon Ranch and raised world-class bison. We're producers of the year two different times, and we just had to get out of the buffalo business because, quite honestly, we weren't as fast getting up and down the gates as we used to be. (laughs) None of us are. It's a situation where you've done something that you've loved for so long, and now you've stepped away from it. Do you miss it, or is it now able to put more time into the writing? It's a mixed bag, Paul. We do miss it. We miss the buffalo. They have incredible personalities, and they're very intelligent. Some of the best moments in our life were spent with buffalo. But it does give us more time to write. And I think the buffalo have given our writing more texture and emotional content than it would have had otherwise. That's interesting. You're telling me contact with animals on a long-term basis, be they dogs, buffalo, horses, adds to you as a human being and influences your writing? Especially with works like Dissolution. Dissolution is set in our backyard at the ranch there in, in, in the Yellow Cricks. And being able to have lived in that environment adds quality and a fullness to the descriptions. And I guess one of the things we always say is you have more understanding when you've had blood under your fingernails and then have to write about it. The other thing too, Paul, is when you have lived closely with an animal like bison for 30 years, it gives you a perspective on how they see the world. And you had better learn to think like bison or you won't be around for very long managing. <laughs> so I think it I can imagine a lot about the environment. And they're huge animals. So you have to be bison aware to very much so. point yeah. of phrase. The reason why people keep being thrown over pine trees in Yellowstone National Park is they never get over the, the whole Disney idea that everything is warm and fluffy. And buffalo are, are normally pretty good people. But they have their personal space requirements. And when you step inside that, you change the entire equation. And the people that do are candidates for the Darwin Award of the Year, as far as that. Yes, (laughs) you got it. Let me get close to this bear and her three cubs. Okay. (laughs) I want to take a selfie with them. We're surrounded by people who make these bad decisions. But continuing with the idea that you have taken a large chunk of your life and have moved away from it, are you writing a lot more? We're making more pages now than we did at the ranch. Part of that is it took us a year to sell the place, to fix things up, to find a new house, to pack up our 30,000 volume library. Oh my goodness. Build a new library for it. And as a result, we lost almost a year of productivity. So we pretty much had the gun to our head. We're still working seven days a week, 10 hours a day. 
I shoot for 10 pages a day, but I may only make seven pages a day. So it depends on the day, but I shoot for 10 pages. And Paul, we write very differently. Kathleen is is ultimate immaculate craftsman. So she'll write the same paragraph over and over again. And my technique is called vomit and mop. There'll be days when I can only get five pages down. There'll be other days when I get 25. But on those days, everyone goes, ooh, 25 pages a day. But the vomit part is critical for the understanding of the process because the mopping usually takes three or four days after that to go back and fill. I actually consider myself to be a bricklayer. So when each brick is in the perfect position, then I can move on. But I can't build the rest of the house until the bricks are all in order. When you say you guys, you write very differently, but you've written so many books together. How does that work? Kathy does all of the good stuff and I do everything else. (laughs) Now, come on. You read our stuff. Every part of that that you've liked, Kathy wrote. (laughs) Right. Anything you thought was clunky, there I am. Actually, how we do it is Mike and I are by training archaeologists and historians. So whoever's expertise we're dealing with drafts out the bare bones of the plot and the characters. And then we hand it to the other to go through. And then we end up handing it back and forth a dozen times before we're both happy with it. So I still do my bricklayer work. And Mike still does vomit and mop, although I'm usually mopping. I can see that conversation going on. <laughs> yeah, You really want to know the, the secret to success? Oh, we would all like to know that. If you have no talent, marry it. And I did. Thank you. (laughs) Mm, Oh, I like that. Yeah. By career, you're not just bison ranchers. You're also anthropologists and archaeologists. These are very high-level pursuits. But writing itself is a form of archaeology and anthropology as you dig into a story, be it fiction or nonfiction. There's that element of peeling apart the onion, brushing away the dirt from the fossils. Do you find that to be true or am I just blowing smoke? You're absolutely correct. Mike and I have learned more from writing books set around archaeological or anthropological themes than we ever learned in the classroom. You're constantly learning. Writing demands that you learn. Do you feel your later work is more layered or, for lack of a better term, competent than your early work as you've learned your craft? Every book that we write, we attempt to do something better, something more unique, something that is going to challenge us. Sometimes it's a change of tense from third person to first. Sometimes it's structural. Sometimes it's changing voice. We've had people come up to us and say, I read one of the prehistory books, and then I picked up the Donovan series, and it's they were written by two entirely different authors, because you have to understand that language is part of, of what gives that novel its particular voice and setting. You just have to use language in that manner. Maybe being an anthropologist and taking all those courses in linguistics actually did me some good. You can vomit and mop in many different languages. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> Yeah, very much, because if you're writing prehistory, you have to use language in a certain way. If you're writing science fiction, you have to use language in another way. If you're writing a thriller like Dissolution, that takes another entirely different voice. It's all about using voice, which makes the novel work. Our goal is we want that reader to open the first page, to fall into that story, and not come out until that last page. And when he does, we want him wanting more. 
Do you run into the problem of fans who love your Westerns and then you put a science fiction novel out and they're angry at you? Or vice versa. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I was reading a, a comment from a blogger a couple of days ago who was talking about how different the voice is from the prehistory books to a book I wrote called Christ from the Lost Island, which is a young adult fantasy novel. And he was really upset because it had a different voice in the prehistory books, but he said he was glad he had read it and he really enjoyed it after he got over that. So readers have to understand different voices, but it takes them a bit. We got really trashed over Alpha Enigma after the, the Donovan books because it's essentially a near future multiverse universe traveling science fiction novel. And on the other hand, we have had other fans that were just madly in love with the People series, and we dragged them into Donovan, and Kathy will be dragging them into the Ice Lion books and the Ice Trilogy. Hopefully, we're dragging other of those fans from prehistory into Dissolution and Fracture Event, Fracture event the and the Foundation that Wolfpack is going we're trying to spread out so that we have one foot still firmly planted in New York. And we're really looking forward and enjoying working with Wolfpack to do some of these other books that are a little bit different than New York would traditionally want to publish. It's a credit to you both as authors that you're either able to drag your audience from genre to genre and keep them entertained, or if that doesn't happen, to still establish success in those other genres, which of course you've done. It shows by your international sales that you're able to do that. Is there one book out of all of those that was either special to either one of you or was special to both of you? It's like picking yeah, me, a favorite child. <laughs> yeah, do you know, the thing is, though, Paul, dissolution is special for us. And the reason is it's set in Wyoming. And it's a today novel that was really fun to write because it's in our backyard. So it's been very special for us. Yeah, we've done other Wyoming books before, but they've all been either set 5,000, 7,000 years ago or during fur trade or Western historical. And being able to do dissolution as a Wyoming novel, New York turned it down because they said it was too regional or they, a couple of them said this couldn't happen. And of course, it was pre-COVID before they found out that, yeah, society really can fall apart that fast. Kathy's literary agent said, I didn't buy that when I read it. I tried to sell it. And he said, you guys were so right. It's difficult being ahead of the curve sometimes. Yeah. yeah, and we spent most of our career being ahead of the curve, which has always been rather uncomfortable. And we get real tired of saying, yeah, see, we told you so. With your anthropology work and your archaeology work, you're dealing with people from the past. And in your prehistory, you're dealing with people from the past. How do you see those books and those stories through their perspective? How do you imagine that? It's a complicated process, Paul, where first you have to understand the environment. Is it the Ice Age? What are their concerns during an ice age? What huge predators are they facing? How's their struggle for food going? What's their material culture? What kind of tools are they using to stay alive? Are they a small band society? Is it just a family society? What kind of lodges are they building? You have to understand the challenges they were trying to meet at the time. And once you understand those challenges, you can see through their eyes. And of course, we also use different native religion as part of the, the key focus for making this understandable. For example, in Dissolution, we have Eastern Shoshone Puhagan, a medicine man, who's the native monitor for the archaeological field crew. He provides the spirit helper for Sam Delgado, the main character, the graduate student, that finds his world is suddenly gone. 
what do you do when you're isolated up in the high country and your society has essentially vanished overnight? Where do you go? How do you reestablish that reality and find yourself? The entire novel is based on making whichever decision is the best of a bad decision to make, but Mm -hmm. with that backdrop of having that native spirituality. We have spent our entire career writing about the collapse of cultures, whether it was Cahokia or Hopewellian or classic Chaco Anasazi. As a result, there's times we studied Harappan culture, the, the collapse of the lowland Maya, and what's gone on in the Middle East with various climatic cycles. And one of the things that can be really depressing is being a student of the collapse of culture and then watching what's going on in our own world. That has really illuminated a lot of the writing in dissolution. We know what's going to break. COVID was a basic test run for it. In dissolution, we just have to ratchet that up a couple of notches. How do you world build and how do you keep it consistent? With Outpost is a good, uh, the whole Donovan series. We're getting ready to release the, the fifth book in that one next month. So much of that depends upon our academic training in understanding biology, mineralogy, chemistry, theoretical physics, genetics. So you put all of that together and say, all right, you have to understand, for example, that organic chemistry, carbon chemistry is going to be the same on Donovan that it is on Earth. So when you're actually building these species, if you've worked as an archaeologist, you understand biomechanics, you understand metabolism, you throw all of this stuff together with a high metal environment with toxic metals everywhere, and you just put it all together as a functioning biological system that is completely believable. The key to all novels is willing suspension of disbelief. I have a question I want to ask you, though, Mike. All right. So when you're writing the alien species in the Donovan series, do bison influence how you see through the eyes of those alien animals? Well, sure, because I know bison as persons. They're highly intelligent. They think and act differently, and each one has its own personality. Mm-hmm. The ice books, how did you manage to create a functioning glacial environment? Exactly the same way, which is you start with looking at prehistoric cultures that survived during the Ice Age, how did they do it? What were they facing? So that's pretty much how you create a functioning environment for my ICE trilogy. There's a wonderful documentary called My Octopus Teacher. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it because your connection with the bison is going to be very much like this individual's connection with an octopus. It's a mind-blowing movie. I said to my wife after we watched it, that is what making contact with an alien life form is going to be about. We don't need aliens from outer space. We have life forms alien to us here on Earth. And what is wonderful about it is so disparate. And yet, what is things that they have in common? And that's how you associate with a different life form that you're not able to verbally communicate with. How do you keep all that archaeology, anthropology, science that you're aware of that you think is so normal with readers that have no understanding of that? How do you keep the books on an average reader's level? It is an art, not an exact science, and we're very grateful that we have each other in the room because if it adds too much scientific information, I'm going to go in and edit it out and say, these are the five words you need to describe it. She does that that, to me a lot. Other than that, you're slowing the story. Get rid of this. And he does the same thing to me. Yeah, Paul, there, there have been times when I have written so profoundly that it was going to redefine Western literature and knock the Pulitzer Committee back on its butt. (laughs) 
only to have Kathleen. Yeah, she reads it, hands me the manuscript back, and in big red letters, she says, Mike, this is real fecal material. She used a smaller Germanic word. It really couldn't be cleaned up with a mop. It just has to go. It has to go. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I've spent the last 40 years being humbled by Kathleen. <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> Clearly, your books demand a lot of knowledge, much of which you have. People tell you, write what you know. In my case, that lasted about 15 minutes. So even though you have this extensive knowledge base yourself, you still obviously have to do a tremendous amount of research. When do you stop researching and start writing? We research in snippets, which means you do the basic general research for the topic you're going to be writing about to start with. But Paul, I'm going to be in the middle of the story writing about some place in the country that I have been but don't know intimately. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have to look up what the prehistoric people used to make cordage. So you look that up, we've got a 30,000 volume line, and I can go downstairs and look that up generally. And what I can't look up, I can find online. The problem with that is you go down rabbit holes too often. No, no, you're not allowed to do that. We're not, we have contracts that we have to, (laughs) and it's one of those things when we talk to new writers and say, the research just keeps carrying me away. And that's not your job. And stop doing it. (laughs) Stop doing it. Be aware that you're going to throw out 80% of your research anyway. 90%. Sometimes, yeah. You give readers any reason to believe what it is that you're doing, and they're willing to go along with that. But you can't either bog them down or overwhelm them. You have to keep the story rolling. That's right. No matter what the genre, including nonfiction, Paul. And that's what I wanted to talk about next. You've written both nonfiction and fiction. Is it a different process? And is one easier than the other? Uh, That's an interesting question. Definitely a different process. It's easier depending upon the subject we're writing about. If we're writing about bison genetics, we're very familiar with it. So it is slightly easier. But I'm not sure that anything is easier, Paul. Everything is hard. If you're doing well, if you're writing well, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, it's going to be hard. That's one of the things that, again, talking to, to new people who are, you know, they just sat down, they just wrote their novel, and they want you to read it, and you read it, and you roll your eyes because structurally it's a mess, and the characters are doing this. Then they're going to go over and do that, and the writing is poor, and you say, you really need to rethink this and rework it. And they say, no, it was perfect. Anything that came out that easy has to be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Want to hear a great anecdotal story? Absolutely. It's 1986. I sold my business and Kathy, she took her retirement out of the federal government. We were living in a cabin at 9,000 feet in the Colorado Rockies. We had a wood stove and a two-hole outhouse, but we did have electricity, which was good. And we had gone to the Western Writers of America. She qualified because they accepted her work for the federal government as being officially published. And my archaeological reports, (laughs) they considered unofficially published. So she got the membership. And the deal was when we started this is she wanted to write nonfiction. She was at the time writing articles about women and big game hunting and selling them to outdoor life. She had all of these great historical nonfiction books that she wanted to work on. But she could get me into the editors. And at this point in time, I had already written eight novels. At the time, Greg Tobin at Bantam was the big fish. So Kathy gets me into the meeting and Greg looks at her and says, what did you write? She says, well, actually, we're here to talk about my husband's books. So I pitched my three books and Greg nodded his head. And then he looked at Kathy and said, well, do you have a novel? And she says, yes. 
It's all about the Sawyer's expedition in the Powder River Basin in Wyoming, and it's got galvanized Yankees in it, and it's got a a white woman in the wagon building train that's having visions of this Cheyenne warrior. And Greg said, wonderful, send it to me. Kathy said, let me go home and go through it one more time. She says, I'll have it to you in a month. And we walked out of the meeting, and I never heard any of this stuff. She was was making it up out of her hat as we talked to Greg. We walked out of the meeting and I said, all right, smart ass, now what are you going to do? And she says, I'm going to go home and write the book. Which I did. And she did. And that, that's I love it. in the wind, which you can, sometimes you can learn all of this stuff if you have a large caliber handgun pointed to your head. <laughs> it's a process that we have to learn in order to finish a book. Do you know, Paul, I get to page 100, which is a huge achievement because you've laid out basically what has to happen, what your characters need and who they are. And then I stop for a while and go, and now what comes next? And then I get to page 200 and I go, now it's getting really hard and it's getting really complicated. What do my characters want? Where are they going? And then I get to page 300 and I go, okay, midpoint, maybe, depending on the book. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And now I need to start bringing everything together. So you go through this all the way through every single single book. book. (laughs) Yeah. And being able to free yourself with the characters. People who get tired of their books and quit and start something else and quit and start something else are never going to make it. It's your book. Make it fun again. We've published 73. Probably written 80. We've probably written 80, 85 novels. Some of them are never going to go. But after you've written that many, you develop automatically into the sense of the structure But when it comes to what happens next, that's always something that the characters are going to tell you if you just sit down and have that conversation with them. Okay, we just finished chapter 23. What are you going to do next? And they always just tell you the answer. They say, given this setback, what we're going to do is, you know, I'm just going to go over and kick this guy's ass and he's going to to tell me what I need to know because this is what my ultimate goal is and this is how I'm going to get there. What is the process for you? Do you just sit down and write? Do you have some idea of where you're going? Do you have some idea of the theme of the book? All of the above. Yeah. In general, we have an idea about all of those things, but basically you start down the road by sitting in front of your computer and imagining that first scene. And you have to be able to get into that first scene before you can do the second scene and the third scene. before. Scene. And we go through this period, Paul, where we'll write chapters that we tuck away in another file on the computer because I don't know where it goes, but it's going to go somewhere. Sometimes it's bass backwards to a bullfrog. We were not going to write another. <laughs> That's a writer term, highly technical. Okay, I like it. I get the drift. Yeah, we weren't going to write another prehistory book set in the American Southwest until we were touring the Chimney Rock site. And we were standing up at the Great House. This is set on top of a mountain in southwestern Colorado at about 8,000 feet behind two sandstone pillars. The moon on the, the solar maximum or the lunar maximum comes up between the two pillars and illuminates the interior of the Great House once every 18.6 years. Standing on the top of this thing, And Glenn points down to the trees. The slope just drops off like a knife. And he says, yeah, and that's where they found all the burned bodies. Whoa, novel. 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 Yeah. Yeah. We end up with with a burned great house. And how do we get there? Yeah. So Mm. that's like, all right, 
then, then you go backwards. Other times, we just start with a concept. Sometimes if it's a book like The Fall of Chaco, then we know what happened. It's like writing a historical novel. This is where you're going to end up. Or, or like with Adotarho in, in People of the, of the Night Sun. That's where the story has to end. So you have that structure laid out. And it's just a matter of... So How do you it, get there? Yeah, it, it depends. And partly, I think, going back to your original statement about writing the same book over and over, it's one of the things that we have had to do so many times that we've learned a whole lot of new tricks. Do you guys feel you think like writers or does your scientific background make you think like scientists? We think like writers 24 hours a day. You were supposed <laughs> to say you think like, like scientific writers. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you know, we, we think like scientists 24 hours a day, too. We're always mixing them, Carl. They're not separate. They're always together. Do you think that mix is part of the key to your success? Probably. Mm, no. <laughs> and the reason I'm going to say that is because when it comes to success at writing, maybe one or two percent is talent and inspiration. And the other 98 percent is sheer dogged tenacity. And tenacity is worth a hundred times what your talent is. Kathy and I have known so many writers who are blessed, like God took his finger down and touched them and said, I'm giving you the ability to write lyrically and magically and to use words in a way that is going to stir the souls of the entire planet. And they write two or three brilliant things and they never write anything else. Too hard. Because it's too hard. Yeah. And we've known other writers who, like us, we had to self-educate when it came to actually writing fiction. And it was bootstrapping. It was reading, reading, reading. It was studying. It was taking novels that we particularly enjoyed. Margaret Mitchell, C.J. Cherry, Elmer Kelton, and actually deconstruct how they done it. Figure out how in turn we can make our work better. We didn't get the fingerprint. We had to work for every single lick of this. Hey, Paul, if you haven't read the book called The Uses of Enchantment by Bruno Bettelheim, you would love it. It's a brilliant book about storytelling. Fantastic. I will definitely look that up. Now let's talk about dissolution. Where did that come from? What sparked that book? That book was sparked at the, the Tor Forge offices in New York City. Prehistory, the writing was pretty much on the wall. Society was changing. People were no longer interested in North American archaeological culture. Sales were dropping. So our, our publisher, Tom Doherty, and his associate publisher, Linda Clinton, sat us down. They had this beautiful office in the Flatiron Building, which is no longer there. It's a damn shame. And they said, we don't think that we're using your strongest suits. And what we would like you to do is write an apocalyptic novel that's based along the same line as, as William Fortune's One Second After, but with an anthropological perspective to it. And Kathy and I said, sure. So we, on the airplane back from New York, this was during Thriller Fest, on the airplane back from New York, we started plotting out saying, okay, what's going to happen? EMP has been used. We have to do something different. We always use our expertise and pick up our phone and call someone who knows something about it when we don't. So we asked a, a friend of ours who is a bank examiner and said, what would happen if somebody hacked, hacked the American banking system and just collapsed mm -hmm. it overnight? 
He said, here's how you do it. And we said, oh, my God. This, he says, this is what Why scares them to death. death. <laughs> and he says, eventually the day will come. He says, you don't have to. You know, don't you attack have, the big guys. No, all you have to do is corrupt the accounts. And if 10% of the accounts are corrupted and unreliable, it's going to shut down credit across the country within three or four hours. And if you do this strategically, like before Memorial Day weekend, which is, is what happens at dissolution, what you're going to end up having is uh, three days while they try and go and reset because banks, they've planned for this, but not on this scale. And especially with the advances in, in computing that we have now with Qubit computers. And so that was the setup. We had an archaeological field crew. They were going to go up in the mountains, do some of the, the high altitude mountain Shoshone archaeology, which is quite the rage in our part of the world. And things just fall apart from there. So it's good for us because we were able to set a book in modern Wyoming for once. And we still are able to use our archaeological background as well as our understanding of the, the collapse of cultures and what happens in the society. How do you save any hint of, of civilization? So unfortunately, the front range in Colorado doesn't come off too well because the Wyoming governor <laughs> uh, just shuts it off and says, Hey, we have energy, we have food, we have all of these resources. We can feed our half million people. So what choice do you make after that? These are questions that we all struggle with as human beings, but as writers, we really struggle with them because they scare us to death. These are the things that are clearly going to happen. Why are we not taking steps? We're not taking steps because it's too difficult and too expensive. Yeah, a lot of people don't believe it. Oh, that'll never happen. In dissolution, most of the people living in Denver, Fort Collins, Loveland, they are so used to government taking care of themselves that they're just going to batten down because everyone's going to say, oh, stay at home. It's going to be fixed. And of course, it is. No, if you really want to scare yourself, go pick up a copy of Kathleen's The Maze Master. It was published in 2019. Uh, 17, 2018. It won the International Book Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. But it's about pandemic. <laughs> Moving on from Dissolution, tell me a little bit about the series Flight of the Hawk. Ah, okay. I wrote the original book back in 1980. We were still at the cabin. 86, 87. It was pitched as a trilogy. And then People of the Wolf was an international bestseller overnight. And the publisher said, we want prehistory, write us prehistory. And I said, hey, I've got this great Mountain Man trilogy. And the publisher said, we don't want you writing Mountain Man trilogy. We want you writing prehistory. I sat in a drawer for 30 years. Yeah. And Kathy's sister, K.S. Jones, had just won the Willa Award. So we were down to watch her pick up a Willa for her wonderful book, Shadow of the Hawk. And went out and had lunch with, with Tiffany from Five Star. And she said, do you have any old Westerns laying around? And I said, funny you should ask. I do. And she said, would you rather have them published than sitting in a drawer? And I thought about that for all of 16, 17 nanoseconds and said, of course. And so Five Star did the original hardback for that. And Wolfpack is doing the digital. And you guys are doing the digital and the soft cover because they're no longer doing that. So that's where John Tyler came from. He'd been laying around in a drawer for years and years. There's two books. There's that's Flight the of a Hawk, that's the river, and then the planes. And the third book, we actually had a contract on. 
we negotiated a contract and then Cengage and McGraw-Hill were going to merge. And so they shut down everything and then they weren't going to merge. And in the process for the advance that we had talked about, the numbers just weren't going to work as a hardback only. Mm. So that wasn't going to work out. At this point in time, I'm going to have to finish some other contracts before I can get to it. But I would really like to have John Tyler and Fenway McKeever have it out up in Yellowstone. Me too. I've got several different ways for, for that to end, all of which I think are really spectacular and fun. And bring it full circle. But on the other hand, if dissolution does what we think dissolution is going to do, I think Mike's going to want to have the, the second book for that called The Line, which is based around a, a young woman who's actually working the line that keeps people from raiding Wyoming. There's just, my gosh, the, the Donovan books are doing really well. Kathy's Ice Lion books are, are getting really rave reviews. First one comes out in two weeks. Yeah. So it's Perfect. just one of those things, Paul, where we're going to have to figure out where our priorities lie because... People like what we're writing. Thank you so much for taking your time and being with us here today. Really enjoyed it. Looking forward to more books from you and much more success to you in the future. Thank you, Thank Paul. Thank you, Paul. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, guys. Hey, Take care. Be well. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and don't practice your gun twirling with a loaded six-shooter. Adios, we're out of here. Let's ride.